It's a privilege to be with you. Um, if you have a Bible with you, please turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking primarily um, at the uh, middle portion of that chapter, verses 8 through 15. Um, I've been assigned the the topic, the the, cro- the title, the cross gives cleansing, and the subtitle, or at least the um, commission subject for this talk is what the death of Jesus means for those who have been sinned against. What the death of Jesus means for those who have been sinned against. Uh, we find ourselves in a really strange cultural moment where. Um, I think multitudes of chickens are coming home to roost. Victims of abuse bravely and boldly exposing the perpetrators of their abuse, and in many cases also exposing widespread systemic and institutional injustice in handling the aftermath, the allegations, the accusations. Um, to some extent, I mean, the the sins didn't begin with this, but the sort of cultural... Um, headlines sort of began a few years ago with the um, the revelations coming out of the Roman Catholic Church, in particular the um, conspiracy of silence um, about widespread abuse in in Boston, Massachusetts, but other places as well. Um, you have some um, culpability among even city governments there um, in in cahoots with the Roman Catholic Church, which is interesting. Um, Of course, there's Jerry Sandusky and the Penn State um, scandal, his abuse there, Larry Nassar and Michigan State, perhaps more recently, Harvey Weinstein and the Hollywood establishment. Um, I didn't watch the Oscars this year, um, not for any sort of, um, you know, self-righteous reasons or what have you, but I just find it increasingly, I love movies, I go see lots of movies, and and so I'm somewhat interested in, in in, in that field and in, in that art form, and, and even who wins awards and things like that. But I just couldn't watch three hours of people who perpetrate uh, such uh, moral perversity and then pontificate about morality at the same time. That was, I just knew that I wouldn't be able to handle it um, this year. And um, the best picture winner um, is a movie about um, interspecies sex. And the host of the Oscars is a fellow who, 20-some years ago, perhaps some people don't even remember this, had a show called The Man Show on Comedy Central, which every episode ended with uh, women in bikinis jumping up and down on trampolines. So I I wasn't looking forward to hearing this guy pontificate about misogyny and and so on and so forth. Um, Even the evangelical church, of course, it's very easy for us to say, look at all those sinners out there, isn't it? Even the evangelical church has not been immune to both incidents of abuse and the institutional mishandling of the aftermath. And what rises, I think, to the surface in the Christian's understanding of these matters is oftentimes, um, sadly, lamentably, a superficial understanding of the complexities of pain, of shame, the pathology even of abusers, and of course, injustice. In these situations, as in so many others, I mean, we shouldn't make do with this kind of theology in any, in any circumstance, but especially in this sort of injustice and in this kind of assault and this kind of sin, a sentimental theology doesn't work. 
It will not do. Let go and let God is not the pastoral response to this sort of injustice. And so when speaking to victims, whether of abuse or any other number of less traumatic yet still painful sins, we cannot represent Christianity as a band-aid that you just put over the hurt as if that will make it go away. The cross of Jesus is simultaneously a place of immense grace and a place of immense wrath. It is a place of excruciating pain, but also exhilarating promise. So we can't do full justice to the full justice of the cross in just one message, but I want to try to delve a little deeper than many Christians, even pastors, seem willing to go with the message that the crucifixion event speaks to victims of all kinds. So here's Paul writing to the church at Colossae. We'll have to do some application to our subject with this passage as um, what we're going to talk about or the application that I'm making is not the immediate reference that Paul has here, but I think the cross, as, as Jared previously um, helped us to see, is multifaceted enough to handle this application. And I don't think we do any damage to our text um, to apply it this way. So let's begin reading in verse 8. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. And you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the, certif the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I don't think we can pray too much, so I just would like to dedicate um, the few minutes we have together to our Heavenly Father, ask him to bless our time, please. Heavenly Father, um, even in a, a room um, with this uh, number of people, there are a great many wounds and perhaps even um, hurts ongoing, certainly hurts lingering. Father, I pray that any, any word that I would say that would be a distraction or further harm, unhelpful in any way, would go in one ear and out the other. I pray that um, if anything is remembered, it would be any word, certainly your word, and anything that I say that may adorn your word, that might exalt your son and edify these precious souls. We ask all these things in the precious name of your son, Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, Paul's direct exhortation to the church here in Colossae is initially, the immediate referent is to be on guard against false teaching. And to be on guard not simply by having better rhetoric, but by seeing your grounding, seeing the historical reality of the gospel. Specifically, he takes them through the gospel of Christ's incarnation, Christ's crucifixion, and Christ's mystical union with 
sinners. Now, there's a lot there. An entire book, a series of books are written about each subject there. The incarnation, the doctrine of the incarnation, the crucifixion, and all of the um, robustness and versatility of the atonement, and of course, Christ's mystical union with sinners, perhaps the premier theme of the New Testament. But Paul knows that because deceit is complex, the antidote must be complex. The problem isn't simple, therefore the answer must not be simple. He knows that distractions often seem plausible and work their way under our skin, into our flesh, confirming things that the devil says, confirming things that are part of our internal monologue, confirming our inner fallenness, our brokenness, our bentness. And so he cannot offer cheap cliches to the Colossians. And in fact, in none of Paul's epistles, but certainly not in this one, do you find any variation of follow your heart. Just figure out what your truth is. When God closes a door, know it was a God thing. Know too blessed to be stressed. Know what Paul offers is this. The Son of God took on the flesh that can be killed. By the submission of his flesh to killing, conquered the perpetration of evil. And through the grace of his resurrection and ascension has united believers in himself to himself that they may also live even if they die and that they may also conquer even if they're killed. By contrast, he makes the heavy, overwhelming, plausible philosophies of the world look puny. It's the deceit, you'll notice, that he says is empty. Not the gospel. Now because of this then, I think we can tease out some important implications of those who, like Jesus, have been victimized by abuses of all kinds. And here's my first implication. The cross of Christ secures your identity from victimhood. The cross of Christ secures your identity from Victimhood. Now, I, I want to wade very carefully into these waters and in, in a lot of ways preparing this message and taking this route, you know, having the assigned text. You know, Jared didn't say I want you to talk about abuse and, and abuse victims. I could have simply talked about what it feels like when you're gossiped against and all those sorts of things. Um, that's a very difficult thing. That's a very hurtful thing. But it's not as traumatic. It's, it's not as fraught with difficulty, fraught with pain as this subject. And so in a way, what I felt like I was, I, I was doing as I was preparing this message is kind of trying to bring a ship to dock among a rocky coast. And to, in some respects, some of those rocks are underneath the water. And so I, I can't anticipate. I'm trying to think, all right, I'm, I'm trying to watch where the swirls and the eddies are and, and, and to see that there might be some danger there, difficulty there. So what, what I'm trying to do is to walk carefully. I want to speak clearly, but I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. So when I say the cross of Christ secures your identity from victimhood, I am not saying that sufferers of abuse and other sins against them are not victims. The cross does not secure us from victimization. If anything, Jesus promised more trouble to Christians on top of the regular trouble that just comes with living in an evil world. In a way, he says to believers, you're actually going to have a more difficult time, at least in this life. 
The cross does not secure our body from victimization. But it does secure our identity from victimhood. Let me see if I can make this distinction. Victimization is what happens to you. Victimhood refers to your state of being. And you can be a victim and yet not ground your identity in victimhood. To identify as a victim is necessary for healing. In fact, many sufferers of abuse experience long delays and even reckoning with what happened to them because many have been led to believe by their abusers or by others around them that they are not victims. So we cannot proceed with any kind of comfort or healing without accurately dealing with what actually happened. To deny victimization is in fact to treat sin with less seriousness than the Bible does. But at the same time, for a victim to ground their identity in victimhood is in effect to delay healing. Now why? Because grounding your identity in victimhood is a way of letting those who've sinned against you define the terms of your identity. You give them not just the power of hurting you, something that they took without your permission, but with your permission, you give them the power of defining you. Verse 8, be careful that no one takes you captive. Through philosophy, empty deceit, based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world, rather than Christ. Now, this worldly philosophy and empty deceit can sound like all kinds of things. And what Paul has in, um, primarily in mind here, um, looking at the uh, immediate referent, is sort of the um, Gnostic philosophy and that influence upon a lot of the, the heresy, the false teaching that is there. It's why he takes great pains to talk about the incarnation, because generally speaking, Gnostics, I mean, there's lots of streams of Gnosticism, so it's kind of difficult to talk about one kind as if they all believe the same thing. But generally speaking, Gnosticism tends to say matter or, or, or creation is bad. And so when Gnosticism began to influence early Christianity, it created, um, you know, symptomatic of the Gnosticism, uh, the heresy that, for instance, um, Jesus wasn't really a man, um, or, or he just appeared to be a man. So he was really God, but he really wasn't human. Now, there's a heresy on the other side as well, where people say Jesus was really human, but he wasn't really God. But the Gnostics sort of influenced the opposite. And so Paul is trying to say, look, look, to say that Jesus was fully human is not to say that he was sinful, but we have to affirm that he was fully human, that God actually put on flesh, flesh that you could put a spear into and cause to bleed. The plausible arguments of theology that Paul mentions in verse 4 previously are sort of in play here as well. But I think applicationally, what this worldly philosophy and empty deceit and even plausible arguments can often sound like the worldly excuses and dismissals used as the flimsy wallpaper we put over injustice. What can this actually sound like? False doctrine, yes. False teaching, yes. But also false affirmations. And I tried to think of a list here. Here are some things, perhaps. Worldly thinking in response to injustice. I mean, when you dress like that, what were you expecting? So you were at a party and you were drinking. I mean, maybe you're the victim, really, of your poor decisions, not of somebody else. 
you didn't yell or scream? Isn't it possible you liked it and you're just regretting now that you did it? I know that you said no, but your body said yes. It's just our secret, our special thing. It's been so long. Why are you trying to ruin a good man's reputation now? Why did you wait all this time to say anything? Don't you think that's suspicious? They didn't say something earlier. This seems really coincidental. Now that the man's running for office, you say something? You're just trying to get attention. I could lose my job. I could lose my wife. I don't know if you've ever heard the term gaslighting, but it refers, um, it's usually a term employed by psychologists and therapists, it refers to the way abusers and those who enable abusers often try to convince victims that their recollection of events is inaccurate. It's sort of a, a psychological subversion of a victim's memory of their experiences, another way of really denying their pain. And it's really just more injustice on top of the injustice, another kind of abuse on top of the abuse. Now, I'm using the language of abusers and abuse here to highlight one aspect of being taken captive by errors. Paul says to be on guard against that, but it can occur in any arena of sin. It can occur in the he said, they said of gossip. I just heard it the wrong way. I, I didn't mean it that way. You're reading my motives all, all wrong. Or the way adulterers often excuse their sin by shifting blame to inattentive spouses. Or just that their lives are boring or whatever. The way perpetrators of racial and other social injustices downplay historic impacts. Or dismiss current inequality. We're better at seeing through some of these words than others, but all of these kinds of words attempt to redefine reality, or at least re-envision it. They attempt some kind of revision. Gosh, that was so long ago. I did you get over it? And the cross of Christ then stands as a sure point in history, a sure point in geography, this really happened, it is factual, and it refutes any attempts at spinning or dismissing or excusing. It does not allow the perpetrators of abuse and injustice to set the terms of reality. And yet, the cross brings in with its factual historical occurrence a heightened reality of its own. It says, sin is real. Abuse is real. Injustice is real. But so is grace. And so is comfort. And so is restoration. It is good and proper to identify your victimization. But it is also necessary to ground your identity, not in the sin committed against you, but in the atonement made for you. Christian, your identity is in Christ. Verse 12, you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. Or verse 10, you have been filled by him, who is the head over every ruler and authority. At its best, grounding your identity in victimhood implicitly cedes power to abusers and other perpetrators in allowing them to define who you are. 
I'm not the victim of physical or sexual abuse, um, but certainly verbal at the hand of authority figures in one of my first ministry roles. I had a, um, a pastor who was over me. It was very confusing. I was young, fresh, looking for a mentor in ministry. And this fellow, I couldn't figure out why. He just didn't like me and would take every, under, every occasion under his breath to sort of subvert me and say things that would just kind of chop me down and knock my legs out from under me. And when you're a kid and you're looking for approval and everything is spiritualized because you're in a church environment, it can... It can really discombobulate you. So much so I can't even say the word. Discombobulate me. That was really early on. It took me 10 years to forgive them. And it was, I woke up one morning, and part of it is just the distance. So the kind of hurt, it's not as impactful as a physical abuse or a sexual abuse, which many people suffer the trauma of that for their entire lives. So the kind of uh, insult, the kind of hurt I suffered didn't have as long-lasting an impact. It wasn't traumatic in that sense, but it still hurt, and it hurt for a long time. But because of the distance, I think, but also one morning I woke up and I thought, you know what? Those guys aren't thinking about me. Why am I every day rehearsing in my mind what they did? I'm, I'm actually giving them power over me, more power than, than they ought to have over me. And that was kind of the first step for me in saying, you know what? I'm not going to think about them anymore. It was also actually 10 years after that that one of those fellows uh, who was over me uh, messaged me and apologized. Isn't that strange? If he had done it 10 years earlier, I would have said, well, let me tell you something. <laughs> but I was able to say 20 years after the fact, I don't think about it anymore. Don't give it another thought, brother. I forgive you. At its worst, grounding your identity in victimhood can fuel sinful thoughts and actions, including the search for vengeance and even, even the repeating of cycles of abuse. We, we know statistically that abusers were usually victims themselves. I'm not saying they get to excuse their abuse by claiming their victimization, but we certainly see that there's a cycle that kind of perpetuates. And what Paul is saying here is, in effect, do not let anyone or anything define you and define who you are except God in Christ. We're not denying the reality of what happened to you. We're not even denying the pain of what happened to you. We're not denying the difficulty in extricating yourself from that pain, dealing with that hurt, the triggering phrases or smells or sights or words, not denying any of that. What we're simply saying is don't ground your identity in what somebody did to you. Ground your identity in what someone did for you. The abuser and the abuse don't own you, Christian. You may be a victim, but because of the cross, you are also a victor. Just as at the cross, Jesus was conquering. Oh, this is just the irony of the atonement. He's conquering the very sin that was being perpetrated against him. As Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, because I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The cross secures your identity from victimhood. Secondly, the cross of Christ validates the pain of your victimization and gives it promise. The cross of Christ validates the pain of your victimization and gives it promise. 
Paul begins with the incarnation, in essence, to refute the Gnostic heresy, but also to remind those who have put their faith, who've repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus, that Jesus himself, the Son of God, though he was above it all, did not act above it all. That all of this, that despite the fact that all of this is beneath his station, he descended even to the grave. That he put on flesh, flesh that could be killed, flesh that could be spit on, flesh that could be insulted, flesh that could be exposed, naked to the world, taunting and hurling abuse at him, the Son of God, though he was above it all, did not act above it all. But he embraced it. And in doing so, the son embraces your victimization. He clarifies the problem. Christ on the cross is proof that sin is real and its wages are death. And what happened to me was so evil and I can't convince anybody. No one seems to see how heavy it is. No one seems to see how difficult it is. People just want me to just get over it. They think that just having the distance from time, that it, it shouldn't hurt me this way, or I, it, it shouldn't linger this way, that I, that I should just somehow get over this thing. Well, God doesn't say that to you. God says, I know. I know. I sent my son to feel that. And in, in effect, what the cross says, because Christ goes to die for the sins of the world, it communicates that to sin against you is a sin against God. The weight afforded to the sin against God gives the gravity for the sin against you. I'm not saying that you're God. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm, what I'm saying is this. Every sin against you is also a sin against the God who made us to love each other. He didn't design the world to work this way. And because the fundamental disconnect, even at the original fall of mankind, the original sin, that disconnect between them and God, the divorce, the enmity between Adam and Eve and God has horizontal impact as well. Because of the disconnect between us and God, there's now disconnect between us. And we cannot disconnect those two disconnections from each other. They're interrelated. To the extent that God would say, whenever you sin against each other, you're sinning against me. If you don't think it's serious enough that you sin against each other, you should know you're sinning against me when you do that. In the same way that he would say, the greatest commandment is to love me. And also to love your neighbor. You, we can't take these things apart. Think of David. I don't know if you've, this is, you've ever been confused by this, but David in his repentant confession prayer after the adultery and murder. Against you only have I sinned, God. Well, really? <laughs> I think we need to understand what he's saying there. I don't think he's saying I didn't sin against Bathsheba and I didn't sin against Uriah. I think what he's saying is, I've done something that deserves the holy wrath of God. I didn't embrace heresy. I didn't take your name in vain. I committed a sin against my neighbor. And because of that, I deserve to go to hell. Or Jesus Christ saying, what you've done to the least of these, good or bad, you've done unto me. 
the cross shows the full gravity, the full scandal, the full evil of the terrible things done to us. And incidentally, not to undercut comfort to victims, but also for all of us, because we are all sinners, also the full evil of the terrible things that we've done. The gospel announces the forgiveness of sin, but it does not announce the whitewashing of it. If God's plan was to whitewash sin, to say it's really no big deal, he wouldn't have sent his son to be murdered for it. I think of Joseph forgiving his brothers. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. He's forgiving them, yes, he's being a big man. And he's acknowledging that God has a purpose for it, that, that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. But he's not saying, oh, it's all right. He's saying it plainly. You meant it for evil. He's naming what it is. You committed evil against me. God validates our pain in the atonement, not simply in having Christ share our pain, but also in our mystically sharing in his. For instance, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then here in verses 9 through 13, he puts it this way, the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh and the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive. He made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. Notice he doesn't just validate the pain. He gives it a purpose. He embeds a promise in it. The cross and the resurrection, actually, are the promise that your hurts will be compensated for. Your victimization will become victory. In Genesis chapter 16, we read this early historical story of sexual exploitation. It tells us a story about the pain suffered as the result of injustice. You probably remember just the backstory there. God has made this covenant promise to Abram. He's going to make a mighty nation out of him. But in chapter 15, Abram complains saying, when are you going to give this to me, God? It feels like injustice. When are you going to do this? I don't have any kids. One of my servants is going to have to be my heir. And God says, no, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a whole lot of things, but I'm going to give you your very own son. And it says, Abram believed God, and the belief was credit to him as righteousness. But we get a few years on, and the son still hasn't arrived, and Sarai has not conceived, and this doubt has built up in them, and the bitterness along with it. And Abram and Sarai do what they normally do when God seems to be taking too long. What we all do, usually, when it seems like God is taking too long, we take matters into our own hands. God's working really slow, they're thinking. Maybe he can't really be trusted. So Sarai hatches the scheme and tells Abram to take their maid, Hagar, and conceive a child with her. So Abram takes Hagar. And the 
the biblical text is very plain speaking, but it's not meant to fool us. What they have done is a terrible thing. Abram has exploited his authority over Hagar. He and Sarai both have done this. He's treating her like something he owns. And they didn't ask her permission. It says in chapter, um, in verse 3 of chapter 16, Sarai gives Abram Hagar as his wife. And they're not just departing from God's design for marriage as one man and one woman. They're treating Hagar not as a person with thoughts and feelings who as a human being is made in the image of God, but like a piece of property to be used. So this isn't just sexual harassment. It is sexual injustice. And in these days, a servant had even less power than other women. She's got no voice. And so Hagar is being exploited and being sinned against greatly. And next to Abram handing off Sarai to Pharaoh to do God knows what with her, twice, by the way, this is one of the earliest examples of sexual exploitation in the Bible. And it doesn't turn out the way Abram and Sarai figure it would. Later we read that Hagar, after conceiving a child by Abram, begins to look with contempt on Sarai. What's she doing this for? Is it like, I've got a child and you don't? Kind of smug contempt? Or is it, I, in, in my opinion, this is just my interpretation, I think it's more of a, I can't believe you would do this to me, kind of contempt. Maybe it's both. But in any event, Hagar's been victimized, and the sin that comes out of her hurt, a need for control, power, compensate for the injustice, prompts her to lord it over Sarai. In any event, Sarah gets sick of it, and Abram gets sick of hearing about it, and the thing continues to be a gigantic, traumatic mess. And so weak, passive Abram takes Hagar as his wife, conceives a child with her, and if that wasn't exploitation enough, he now treats her like a cast-off. Whatever you want to do with her, Sarai says, go ahead and do it. So Sarai, in effect, throws Hagar away, and at the end of verse 6 in chapter 16, she deals harshly with her to the point Hagar takes off carrying her unborn child. Now, not all pain is physical, right? I think sometimes we, we, we would prefer physical pain to the kind of inner trauma that can persist and haunt and damage us. When I was a pastor, I would occasionally be counseling or, or, or speaking with emotionally and verbally abused wives. And something really interesting that more than one would say was, Sometimes they would say, I almost wish he would hit me, because then people would believe. They could see the evidence of the abuse. But when I describe what's actually happening, people just say, you know, so he, he loses his temper. Does, does he hit you? What a terrible prospect it would be. What a feeling of hopelessness and alienation that somebody would wish for physical hurt, because it would be easier to address. Or to prove. Or to manage the hidden emotional hurt. These husbands needed to be disciplined. And they were. But oftentimes consequences for offenders doesn't lessen the pain of the offense. And sometimes our pain has no tangible source. Maybe you haven't been abused. There's no offender perhaps to address. There's no Abram to be disciplined. Maybe you just feel the pain of living in a fragile world. I wish I knew what was wrong with me. Every day, it's just pain. It's inconsolable. 
I'm just waiting for, for life to be over. They just hurt so much. I wish there was somebody to blame. Maybe right now, tonight, you feel a bit like Hagar. and Somebody has hurt you. Maybe far in the past. Someone has done an injustice to you. Or maybe it's still happening. And you don't know what to do about it. Or maybe your hurt is somehow indiscernible. There's no clear explanation for it. You only, you only know you hurt. You need to know that God has not forgotten you. And he has not forsaken you. In sort of the crescendo of our story, it's not the end of the story, but in the crescendo, especially in Genesis 16, the angel of the Lord finds Hagar out in the wilderness, and she's alone, and she's afraid, and she's feeling used and thrown away, and God comes near. And she needs to know what to do, where to go, how to make sense of this great wrong that's been done to her, and the great pain that's resulted. And the Lord's messenger tells her something that's so inscrutable. He tells her to go back and submit to Sarah. Now, this is one of those things where as a preacher, as an expositor, I want to say not everything that's descriptive is prescriptive, right? This should not be taken as a blanket endorsement for those abused or victimized to submit themselves to more abuse and victimization. I don't think we need to read it that way. In fact, I think too much damage has been done in the evangelical church in instructing victimized people to keep themselves in harm's way. But this specific instruction to this specific person does have a general application for all people everywhere, and it's this. I will make it right. I see. I know. I am not ignorant to what's happening to you. And see, God doesn't send Hagar back into a difficult spot without compensation, without hope. He says, in fact, he gives her a promise. He says, trust me. I'm writing a magnificent story here, the end of which you can't see yet, but I'm going to provide for you the vindication and restoration that your heart is longing for. And God says to Hagar, as he said to Abram, oh, this is wonderful. I'm going to make a great people out of you too. You will be compensated for this. There will be justice. You are not forgotten. You are not thrown away by me, God says. And God has not thrown you away either. He's not forgotten you. He, he will plead your case. He will redeem the time that you spend in pain. Consider Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Consider Isaiah 61, verses 2 and 3, which says that when the day of the Lord comes, God will come to comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Consider Jesus beginning his sermon on the mount with these declarations, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Another word for that is justice. That all the wrongs would be righted. That everything that's upside down would be turned right side up. 
that all the evil would be vanquished, that all the hurts would be healed. Jesus says, do you hunger and thirst for that? I crave it in your bones every day. Say, how long, God? Jesus says, you're going to be satisfied. It's coming. It's coming. You Christians who hurt and wait and hurt and wait and hurt and wait, your day is coming. We echoed the prophet in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3, who hears from the Lord, if it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come. It will not delay. The cross and the resurrection means you aren't just validated, but vindicated. And this leads me to my third and final point. The cross secures your identity from victimhood, number one. The cross of Christ validates the pain of your victimization and gives it promise, number two. And thirdly, the cross of Christ ensures that your cause will be taken up and justice will prevail. The cross of Christ ensures that your cause will be taken up and justice will prevail. It even means, as difficult as this sometimes seems to be and feels to be, it even means that you can forgive someone who has wronged you, even if they are not repentant. Now, I distinguish, some people don't, I distinguish forgiveness from restoration. Some people say you can't forgive someone who's not repentant. I say you can, but you probably cannot be restored to them because they're not repentant. Restoration involves two willing parties, a forgiving party and a repentant party. But someone can be repentant whether they're forgiven or not. You may withhold forgiveness from someone who's actually repentant. And someone may not be repentant and you can forgive them. You say, I, I, I'm, I'm handing this to God. I'm not going to seek vengeance on this. You, you, you're off my hook. But I'm not going to submit to your abuse anymore. We can't have the same kind of relationship anymore. Because you, re, you, you redefine the terms by your sin. So please hear what I'm saying and don't hear what I'm not saying. You can forgive someone who has wronged you even if they are not repentant. And I get this straight from the atonement itself, from Christ hanging on the cross. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The heart of Jesus himself was to forgive those in the midst of their sin. And the cross of Jesus Christ is the great interrupter of human agendas. The sinful world says, we mean this for evil, but the God of all comfort says, well, I mean it for good. And I'm going to have the last word. It's because of the cross that the Christians in Hebrews 10 are said to have joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Like, oh, that's so wonderful. That's something to really look up to. And then the tax time comes around. Feel plundered, don't you? I feel plundered every year, I'll be honest with you. I thought they said it was going to be better. Well, they knew they had a better possession and an abiding one. But I don't get to keep it anyway. Can't take it with me. Giving grace to the undeserving is true power. Something happens. You, you, you level up or something. True power. Because the cross is exactly that. It's an act of grace for the undeserving. And the cross is simultaneously the enthronement of Christ the King over and against all wickedness, injustice, and demonic strongholds. He disarmed the rulers, verse 15, and authorities, and disgraced them publicly. No, hold on. Wait, Paul. You're talking about the cross. 
That's what they did to him. They, they disarmed him. They, they disgraced him. You've got your pronouns mixed up. They stripped him naked. They nailed him to a tree. They exposed him to shame. They exposed him to the elements. They exposed him to abuse. Paul says, yeah, yeah I know that. You don't think I know that? I'm saying something else was happening. They thought they were doing it to him, and they were, but he was doing it to them too. He disgraced them. He triumphed over them. The cross is God's promise that justice delayed will not be justice denied. There is a reckoning coming. So, okay, what does Hagar's day look like? Go back, submit to Sarai. Are you kidding me? What does the next day look like? Get up. you got to go to work. God sends her back into difficulty, but he makes a promise that, he's, um, that he never makes to any other matriarch. Isn't that interesting? I'm going to make a great nation out of you too. Hagar is the only woman in the Bible to receive this promise. Verse 10 of Genesis 16, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for a multitude. But Hagar does not return to an immediately comfortable, welcoming environment. She and Sarai never get along. And even after Isaac is born, Hagar rubs Sarai the wrong way, and both Hagar and Ishmael get thrown out again. But God comes along again and looks after them again, because that's what he does. And so I imagine for Hagar living in a hostile environment, it could be extraordinarily empowering to know God's going to take care of me. It's extremely liberating when you believe that God will handle it, when you believe your reward is in heaven, when you believe God will mete out justice in a satisfactory way, when you believe God can be trusted, when you believe it's all going to get set right in the by and by, you begin to worry less, you stew less, you try to control things less, you try to get revenge less. And the weight of heaven where every tear will be dried, every pain healed, every evil vanquished is the great counterbalance to the weighty hurt that we feel now. When you feel like you can't go on, remember Christ tasted even death for you so that even death would not have the last word. So you can endure loneliness with confidence and joy when you believe God is looking after you. Paul says this about constant pain. This is something that just, if the cross isn't true, it makes no sense. This is a, just a light momentary affliction. Paul is rarely writing from the comfort of an easy chair next to a roaring fire. Right? Mug of hot cocoa, little pipe simmering. What shall I write next? <laughs> this is just a light momentary affliction. I gave him a British accent for some reason. I don't know. <laughs> no, he's a guy. Colossians is written, I th we, we think, before imprisonment, but it's been a lot of time in chains, bent over, whipped. They tried to murder him multiple times, assassination attempts, shipwrecks. Bent over, scars all over his back. The chains twisting, contorting, constant pain of his muscles and joints. Looking over to his fellow sufferer. Oh, it's just a light momentary affliction. How can you say that? You, he must be crazy. Well, I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. What I'm saying is it's a light momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory. On top of all of this, he has this strange thorn in the flesh. 
How can he call it light? How can he call it momentary? Paul knew that God was telling a story about everything, and this meant that even his pain was being swept up into the grand narrative of God's redeeming work in Jesus Christ to restore the world and vanquish that pain forever. This doesn't make pain painless. It doesn't make injustice just. But it it says there is purpose. God is sovereign. Pain for those who trust Christ is not pointless. It is being stewarded towards something, drafted into a story of glory and wonder and eternal joy. The cross is proof that the blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. If Abel's blood spoke of justice denied, Christ's blood speaks justice accomplished. No sin slips through the cracks. The great evil of sin of those who have sinned against you is shown at the cross. And the magnitude of the punishment owed to such sin is shown at the cross. We may seek justice in this world for wrongs committed against us. But even if we were to get it, that justice would be imperfect and cannot often restore what we've really lost. Particularly when what is lost is emotional and psychological. But the cross is proof that the sin is taken seriously, accounted for, and that ultimate justice will prevail. He was exposed that we might be covered. He was accused that we might be blessed. He was bloodied that we might be cleansed. He was killed that we might live forever. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Martin Luther King Jr. has famously said, The moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And this is true. But mainly because, and King believed this as well, Mainly because the moral arc of the universe bends toward Jesus. The cross secures your identity from victimhood. The cross of Christ validates the pain of your victimization and gives it promise. And the cross of Christ ensures that your cause will be taken up and justice will prevail. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, you are good and you do good. Father, I don't want to even presume that in this 